You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, episode 173. This episode's topic is herbivores. Herbivores. Here on the podcast, we talk all things paleontology, evolution, earth history, and so on. A discussion about herbivores means we are talking about a sort of fundamental lifestyle for life on earth. Kind of important. Herbivores are, of course, plant eaters. Yes. In an episode about herbivores, we will talk about what counts as herbivory, the adaptations that have evolved to deal with eating of plants, and we'll talk about how herbivores and herbivory have arisen and evolved and changed through time and how they impact the world around them. Should be a bunch of fun. Yeah. So we're going to talk a lot about uh, all sorts of different types of life here on this episode. We'll talk about ecosystems. We'll go into deep time. It's going to be a whole bunch of fun. One of those episodes that really puts things into perspective. And a big thanks, as usual, to the people who requested this topic. We got a number of requests either for herbivory specifically or related dietary questions. These requests came from Nick, Big Boss Man, CC Stat, JWS, ESMZ, Richard and Simon. Ooh, very popular topic. Thank you to everybody. Hey, before we get into the main parts of the episode, let's do some announcements. First and foremost, we have a Patreon. Mm -hmm. On our Patreon, we get support that allows us to do all the things that we do on the podcast. We are always very grateful. One of the ways that we show that gratefulness is by providing goodies and benefits to our patrons. Bonus episodes additional content. We do live streams every month, all sorts of cool stuff. And at certain levels on the Patreon, you get your name shouted out on the podcast. This episode, we would like to welcome Ted, Alexandra, and Robin. Welcome. Thank you for your support. Welcome and thank you. Thank you to all of our patrons and you, listener. Yeah, you. If you'd like to support the podcast on Patreon, please consider doing so. Link down in the episode description. We'd appreciate it greatly. Speaking of people saying hi to us, we got mail. We did. We have a mail a mailing address that you can find in the episode description and you can send us stuff. We got a lovely postcard with a snake on it from Marcella. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for thinking of us. Yes. It's pretty cool art. I like it. It's very cool art. And it is a, uh, ostensibly a snake month gift. Mm -hmm. So thanks for that. <laughs> Speaking of doing fun stuff with the podcast, we are at DragonCon. Yes. At, not as we're recording, but when this episode comes out, we will be at DragonCon in Atlanta. A huge thanks to everybody who we assume has already come to see us and say hi. Yes, indeed. But this episode will technically be coming out before we do the Science Power Hour Sunday morning and Science versus Movies Sunday evening. So if you're listening to this and you're at DragonCon, come see those. Yes. They're going to be tons of fun. We are very excited for both of these, so check them out if you're available. It's going to be a blast. Absolutely. Hey, also, we had a bonus episode come out very recently, a silver screen science for the movie 65. Yep, we finally did it. We finally did it. Yeah, we've, it's been 
on our radar for a few months. People have been asking about it. We've been ruminating over it. Thinking about it. <laughs> oh, you missed my joke. And now there is a <laughs> episode of Silver Screen Science, the first one of the year, back to our series where we talk about uh, the science and movies and the intersections of science and pop culture. Check it out and enjoy. And finally, speaking of side series, it is the beginning of September, and it is time to make a very important announcement. Next month is October, and October is spooky season. Spooky! Every year, we do a series called Spooky, Spookulative Evolution, where we take monsters from pop culture, mythology, and so on, and discuss how they might evolve in the real world using the tools of evolution and natural selection. Every year we do a different theme. We've done classic movie monsters, monsters of Greek mythology, sea monsters, plant monsters, the monsters of D&D. It is officially time for us to announce this year's spooky theme. Will, what are our monsters this year? This year we are discussing and evolving dragons. Dragons of all shapes and sizes, all different types. We have picked out four particular types of dragons that we'll be looking at. This has been a long time coming. Dragons has been on our brains for Spooky for many years. We're very excited to bring it to you as with all Spooky seasons. We will have four Spooky episodes coming out, one every Saturday in the month of October. So be sure to stay tuned and check in on that. As it's going on, you can follow us on social media. There will be discussions in the Discord. So get involved in those conversations. And something new for this year, in November, after our episodes are out, we will be doing, for the first time, a spooky live stream. We will be streaming live on YouTube for anybody to join in. We'll have discussions, Q&A, all about our spooky season. If you want to talk about past spookies, if you want to talk about speculative evolution in general, it'll be a cool chance for us to interact with our spooky audience after this year's spooky season is over. I'm very excited for that. The live stream will be taking place on Saturday, November 11th at 3 p.m. Eastern time. That's whatever time it is in your time zone. (laughs) We'll also be posting about this and we'll have reminders on our website and on our social media. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a super fun spooky season for 2023. Yep. And with all of that excitement having been excited... (laughs) Now we can move on to the news. The news. Every episode, we like to start out by discussing some new scientific research and discoveries from the world of paleontology and so on. Will, give us some news. My first bit of news is about a squid, or vampire squid, which means it's actually closer to an octopus, Mm. from the Middle Jurassic that was identified with some x-ray, some powerful x-rays so they could see some of the soft tissue, and it had some interesting features oh cool so even though this episode's not about the ocean we're still stuck on our ocean kick i can't quit it cold turkey (laughs) we're leaving it where it's staying alive this is like when you're just slowly leaving the shallows and you're just getting lower and lower because it's cold (laughs) and i don't want to leave the water this is research by allison rowe et al in the papers in paleontology and the article is by patrick pester in live science That article will be linked in the blog. Yes, indeed. This is a fossil from a Lagerstätte site in France, a 165 million year old Jurassic site. Well-known site. Uh, Many fossils have been found from here before. It is noteworthy for its 
3D preservation style. So it, many of the fossils are not flattened, but actually preserved with the rough shape of the animal and preserving a lot of soft tissue. This is due to a rapid replacement of iron-rich minerals replacing the soft tissues. Up to now, up to eight genera of coleoids, which is a group of cephalopods. It's one of the two main groups, and these are the soft-bodied or shellless groups. So octopus and squid and cuttlefish are all in that group. These researchers were using high-resolution x-rays and computer modeling to get an idea of the soft tissue of some of these fossils. So many that had already been discovered and some had been described, they were just reanalyzing them with these techniques. One of the specimens had not yet been described and is the subject of this paper in this news. A very small specimen, 8 centimeters long, so 3.2 inches. Little, little. Little, little bitty squid. They scanned it and were able to identify a number of soft tissues in it, leading to some interesting combinations of features. First off, it had eight arms, which is pretty standard. The musculature seems to be octobrachia type, which is more similar to your octopus okay. style. The cephalopods lacking uh, prominent tentacles like a squids or a cuttlefishes. But the sucker attachments, or you know, sucker in quotes here, is more like the vampirotuthis, which is the vampire squid today inside the group Vampyromorpha, which it sounds like a number of these fossil specimens are vampyromorphs. Mm. And vampyromorphs are in the octopodiforms, so octopus and vampire squids are actually within the same group. Right. More similar to an octopus, but it has the flappy head fins of a squid, so it got named that. Yep. Yeah, if you don't know what a vampire squid looks like, uh, Google it. Yes. They're very cool looking. Very, very interesting. They are deep sea creatures. They don't have tentacles, but they do have long filaments in place of the tentacles. Mm -hmm. So it's been very reduced and specialized. And they have eight arms. They have eight arms. Like an octopus. And they don't have suckers. Mm -hmm. you know, they don't have suction rings. They do have places where the suckers would be. They have similar structures. But those, I, from what I understand, are more in the role of producing mucus in catching their food, not actually grabbing anything. Hmm. They're free-floating deep-sea animals. They never touch anything that they need to grab onto, and they're not grabbing prey and catching it with the suckers. So it's got musculature more like an octopus, but suckers more like the vampire squid. Okay. And they were able to identify some of the internal organs. They identified an ink sac. Nice. Pretty standard for a sure. cephalopod. That's this supposed is, to be there. Yep. We find this in many groups today and many fossil groups. This is well known. This is the thing. They jet out a bunch of mucus, dark mucusy ink into the water, often as a way to distract or try to escape predators. But they also identified what they interpreted as luminous organs, bioluminescent structures. Ooh. Now, this is also known in cephalopods today to have both. So we have glowing squid and uh, octopus cousins today that have these luminous structures, and many of them also have ink sacs. But this is not known from any other fossil group. Oh, cool. This is the first time both of these structures together identified in a fossil genera. Oh, neat. Yes. Which means it's a fairly unique, at least for the Jurassic, set of defense mechanisms. Yeah, you are glowing and inking. Mm -hmm. And glowing can be used for communication, but as we've discussed, it can also be used for counter-illumination yeah. to glow like the the sky light in the deep water and blend in with the... Uh, get rid of your uh, uh, silhouette, basically. Yeah. Episode 157 about bioluminescence. Yes, yes. All this together, along with morpho morphology of the gladius, which is part of the body structure, meant it could not be placed with any of the known 
cephalopods that they had, so it justified it being a new species. And it was given the name Vampyrofugians atramentum. Vampiro for the vampire squid. Fugians is for is Latin for fleeing because it had those uh, defensive yeah. structures. So this it is, was a really good escape artist. Yes, they named it the fleeing vampire, <laughs> and noted that that it likely had kind of an interesting behavior, especially for you know compared to modern vampire squids. One, it seemed like it was also living in open water, but probably catching and eating prey, mm-hmm. fish, crustaceans, other cephalopods, whatever it might be. But it, the musculature of its arms seemed like it likely was actually grabbing things. Whilst modern vampire squids are scavengers feeding off of the marine snow right. floating down the, the, the depth. detritus mm-hmm. falling through the water. Uh, from what we seem to understand, it is that they can catch it on hairs on their filament, bring it in, gob it up with mucus, and then pass that to the mouth. Which technically makes them a scavenger. That All that's right. dead material. So this, the, the, one of the authors was quoted saying this makes it both predator and prey compared to. Yeah. That it's a hunter, but mm-hmm. also really good at escaping. Yes. It has those defensive structures. <laughs> so it was probably also being preyed on likely also by other cephalopods or other predators in general. And this both increases the diversity known at this site, which is always exciting, broadening the morphological variation we know from those cephalopods and suggests a higher diversity of cephalopods during the middle jurassic yeah so we're just getting a better view of the overall diversity of cephalopods and that this will likely be important for cephalopod evolution at least during this period of time yeah well that's a very cool find right you mentioned the name means fleeing vampire and i'm just in spooky mode (laughs) i guess it did we didn't do this in our vampire episode of spooky but it does make me think of a speculative scenario of a vampire squid releasing ink and then being gone and giving rise to the thought of vampires turning into mist <laughs> and floating away. Yes. <laughs> I do like that. The idea of an animal that has multiple different communication, defensive distraction strategies is very cool. Yes, absolutely. Well, and it's cool to think, were you using these simultaneously? Were you using them for different scenarios? Did some work for one predator and others work for the other? Were you holding deep sea raves? Yes. Where you were your own strobe light and smoke machine? Yes, exactly. And I mean, the obvious answer is yes. Of of course. Of course. Why would you not? You'd be throwing away money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as it turns out, I also have a bit of news about a Jurassic fossil cephalopod. Woo! This one is slightly more uh, related to this episode topic because there is some discussion of diet here because the cephalopod is inside the body of another animal. Oh, no. And the cephalopod is an ammonite. Yeah. This is research by Samuel Cooper and Aaron Maxwell in Geological Magazine, and we will link to an article in Live Science by Ethan Friedman. The fossil is a two-in-one fossil a fish with an ammonite shell inside of it. The fish is Pachycormis macropterus, which is only about three feet long, so about a meter long, a little bit less. Pachycormids are a relatively well-studied, it sounds like, group of teleost fish known from the Mesozoic era. They include plenty of smaller species, but this group also includes the fish Leedsichthys, which includes some of the biggest fish ever known yes uh, growing up to 15 meters or so that's 50 feet these are this is basking shark sized ridiculous or whale shark sized very very big 
The diets of these fish are not particularly well understood. That's something that this study aims to elucidate a bit. However, the discovery of the ammonite inside this fish might not actually help as much as you'd expect to help understanding diet, because it seems like that ammonite is not supposed to be there. <laughs> the ammonite, so ammonites are the coil-shelled cephalopods, very prominent during the Mesozoic era. They would have looked a lot like nautiluses today, with a coily shell and little squid face sticking out of the front. The ammonite inside this fish is potentially the genus Elegantoceros. It's about 10 centimeters or four inches across. Okay. Which is too big for this fish, leading the researchers to suspect that this fish might have choked to death on this ammonite shell. In fact, the, the title of the paper is Death by Ammonite. Yep, yep. <laughs> this fossil was discovered in the 1970s near Stuttgart, Germany. It has been stored in museum collections since then. It dates back to the Jurassic, a little older than your cephalopod, about 180 million years old. According to the article, researchers knew about this specimen with a fish and an ammonite together, but it had been assumed before in-depth analysis that it was just two things buried next to each other. All right, that all right. It would have been a coincidence. This research actually did a close examination and found that there are parts of the fish both above and below the ammonite shell. Yes. yes. Suggesting that it was inside the body. Also, they noted that the shell of the ammonite is surprisingly well-preserved in ways that suggest that it may have been protected from the elements, which also it supports the suggestion that it was tucked away inside the body of this fish. Very cool. Now, like I said, this group of fish, their diet has not been examined in much detail before this, so as part of this research... The scientist also reviewed other examples of gut contents in fish of this family. Okay. And they found some really interesting trends. They found that the younger fish gut contents pretty much exclusively seem to be smaller fish. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then as they get older, they seem to take on cephalopod prey. But soft-bodied cephalopods, so things like your squid, that kind of stuff. <laughs> this was the kind of stuff that that squid would have been flashing and inking away from. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> this fish, the ammonite shell does not fit that pattern and indeed seems to have been likely swallowed by accident. Yep. And fatally, mm -hmm. potentially causing the death of this fish. Part of the evidence for that is just the size of it. It's relatively large compared to the fish's body and stomach. It's hard and brittle, unlike the soft-bodied prey these fish seem to otherwise be eating. Also, they noted there's no evidence on the fish of other trauma. Yep, yep. It doesn't seem like the body, there's no bite marks, there's nothing like that. And based on the way the fossils are together, it seems like the fish died and was fossilized pretty soon after this ammonite shell would have gotten in there. Yeah. All of which seems to suggest that this was an accidental swallowing that then led to the death of the fish, which happens uh, in animals today sometimes. Yes, and it ha seems like it happens uh, with fish somewhat regularly because I've, I've definitely seen a number of examples of that. Mm -hmm. I know there's a, a couple other fossils where that's suspected, but also just with modern fish of people finding or catching fish that are either dead or dying because they inhaled a fish 
too yeah. big for them to actually handle. And it, when you inhale your food, it seems like that could easily happen. Yes. <laughs> and they do actually go into some detail hypothesizing how this could have happened. They point out that based on evidence of the shell itself and certain elements that are missing from it lead them to suspect that the ammonite itself was already dead, possibly decomposing, or the shell was empty when the fish got a hold of it. Okay. So it could be that the shell was floating in the water column because they're buoyant. They're, mm. That's how ammonites float around. And the fish might have either mistaken it for something tasty that, that, you know, moving through the water and it thought that's food and then it grabbed it. Or it's possible the fish was meaning to scavenge on it mm -hmm. if there were still little bits of meat and decomposing material the fish might have been scavenging on it they didn't mention this but it, it does make me wonder if there weren't small fish scavenging on it yes and then this fish tried to get those that i was wondering the exact same thing that if you if you go to suck up one prey and just miss right did you accidentally get this shell so there's a couple different ways it could have happened this is a very rare example in the fossil record of Having an animal preserved with the meal that seems to have killed it. Yes. Which is, it's, it's so, in, one, I've talked about this kind of thing with people before and, you know, cause this, like you said, this happens with animals, you know, quite often just because well, there's no one around to perform the Heimlich exactly, for like, them. It's just animals make mistakes just like we do. Yep. And sometimes those mistakes are eating something you shouldn't have. And I, you know, I've talked to people and they sometimes get confused, but like, don't think, don't, shouldn't they know better? And yeah. it's like, I mean, you know, we... Well, and the answer is, yeah. Yeah. Usually. Usually they do fine, but... That's th why it's called a mistake. We make mistakes too. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, we you usually would. But I also always like to remember, especially with like the way fish often feed, that as a predator, you don't know when you're going to get the chance again. So a lot of times the reflex for many, many predators is bite first, figure it out once it's in your mouth. Right. And also, as you pointed out, a lot of fish feed by suction yes. feeding, literally inhaling their food. And so very often the the behavior is I see something moving that looks like it might be food. I'm going to go get it. And right. then if it's if, unpalatable. If I'm wrong, I'll spit it I'll out. I'll spit it out. But if it was, uh, if you're not able to spit it back out because it gets lodged in there, mm -hmm. you've, you've overcommitted and you don't have a way to back up. Yeah. Also, this was mentioned in the paper. It wasn't like a central discussion point, but they did mention it. And it, to me, seems like a beautiful case of parallelism. Apparently, there are fossils known of fish inside ammonites. <laughs> of small fish inside the shell chambers. Yeah. Not necessarily like they got eaten, but they went inside the shell. Oh, that's so interesting. Either yeah. to scavenge or, or, hide or, or to hide or something. Ooh. Uh, so now we've got both. Yes. <laughs> we've got ammonite inside of fish, and there are other fossils of fish inside ammonite. Yeah, just just our, our nesting dolls of yeah. ammonites and fish. <laughs> <laughs> cool. My next news is one that I've seen a lot of paleo art of, which is part of why I picked it, because I wanted to learn about this creature. This is a new reptile, a new species of what seems to be precursor pterosaur and gives some more insight into what the diversity of early pterosaur, early dinosaur ancestors was like in the Triassic. This is research by Rodrigo Mueller et al. in Nature, and the article is by Enrico de Lazaro in Sci News. 
Dinosaurs and pterosaurs, their ancestry started in the early Mesozoic, in the Triassic, probably middle to early late Triassic. For quite a long time, the there was a, a good bit of debate about the origin of the, these two groups, but mm-hmm. more recently we have started finding what seems to be precursors, ancestral lineages, or close to the ancestors of these lineages yep. like, from this time. Like we've discussed, and particularly episode 79 about pterosaurs, the early fossil record of them, like many flying groups of animals, is just not very well resolved. Yes. And we the you know, we still have the issue that none of them seem to give us a good indication of how flight evolved right. in pterosaurs, but we are getting more and more diversity in that group. Mm-hmm. So that we are starting to see at least some of the examples of those early relatives and ancestors. But a lot of those fossils are still missing really crucial parts. Evidently, well-preserved skulls, hands, and other parts of the skeleton, but those were the two uh, specifically mentioned, have still been not found regularly, even though our number of, they keep calling them precursors, the number of precursor pterosaur dinosaur ancestors has increased. We still are missing some of those really lovely bits. Well, and skulls and hands are very important for the evolution of both those groups. Those are important body parts. (laughs) Exactly. This new species is well-preserved and preserves both of those, which is part of why it's been getting so much attention. Hooray. This specimen has been named Venetoraptor gassinae. It is a well-preserved partial skeleton, so it's still not the full thing, but it's got some of the exciting bits. From Brazil and dates to about 230 million years ago in the Upper Triassic. And from an area which is known for some of the oldest dinosaurs in the world. So, like, this is an area known for these kinds of specimens. Overall, it looks like the creature likely would have been about a meter long, so 3.3 feet is what they said, probably weighing between 4 to 8 kilograms, so not too big. Not too big. Too small to eat a 4-inch ammonite. Yes, exactly. It also would have struggled. (laughs) This is grouped among the Lagerpetids and Lagerpetidae. This is a family of early diverging pterosaur ancestors and cousins, and gives us a look at the skull and hands from this group that we typically don't get and so it's been very exciting and has some unusual features. One being that the skull has a sharp raptorial beak. Hmm. Kind of like a hawk beak. Yeah. It's got a sharp beak up front, which they said precedes dinosaur beaks by 80 million years. Yeah. So this is unusually early in th- these lineages for us to see a beak and could give us some insight into the diet. Now, these kinds of beaks could be for meat eating, but also could be for like tearing open plants because we see that in fruit eating and and like nut eating birds today as well yeah and uh spoiler alert but we will mention this later in the episode yes among dinosaurs beaks often show up associated with plant eating yes indeed it also has big hands Hmm. they said enlarged hands with sickle or scimitar like claws like hooked curved claws and once again this could give them a couple of insights into what it could be doing. These would be great for climbing. Yep. But along with the hook beak, these could be great for prey capture. Sure. So this could have been grabbing prey with these claws and then tearing into it like a bird of prey. Yep. Or it could have been climbing up trees and going after mm-hmm. plants up there. So we've got a couple of options for what it was doing. This does establish that it was no longer walking on four legs that this was a loss of quadrupedalism based mm-hmm. on these hands. So that 
it, they said it firmly establishes that in at least this lineage of this group. Yeah, which is very common among early archosaurs. Exactly. Dinosaur ancestors, pterosaur croc ancestors are a lot of bipeds. Yes, and so that seems to be the case here. They then use this new specimen in comparison with other dinosaur and pterosaur early members to get an idea of kind of what was the spread of diversity in these groups during the Triassic, these early precursor members. And they found that, A, the diversity of forms, the disparity of pterosaur precursors outnumbers dinosaur. Hmm. So they were actually more diverse in form in their shapes and adaptations than the dinosaur precursors at that time, at least so far have we found. Which indicates that the success of these two groups that, you know, went on to be two of the dominant groups in the rest of the Mesozoic came from what they call differential differential survival. That they were coming from not similar diversity, but came from two different kind of backgrounds and still led to diverse lineages, but mm-hmm. seemingly in different ways. They also noted that the morphological diversity within Ornithischians, which one of the main groups of dinosaurs started to show up early in the diverging in those early diverging lineages, not just later on in dinosaur evolution that we start seeing the various forms fairly early on in that group. So among this group of early dinosaur pterosaur members, ancestors, and so on, it seems like different groups are achieving different levels of diversity at different times. Yes, and that dinosaurs and pterosaurs had a different history. Yeah. That they came from, with pterosaurs being more diverse in that the pool that they came from is one of the ways they worded it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. That's a very cool thing to know from a... It, it's very cool as the years go by to see parts of the, the, the family tree, in this case the archosaur family tree, become slowly more and more understood. Yes. And, and more and more well known. Uh, now we got uh, we have a new member of the family. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Very I'm just cool. just waiting for us to find the one that's starting to think about flying. That would be well. This one's got big hands. Right. Right. So maybe it was it was on the way. I had that thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, since our three other newses have all been in the Mesozoic, I figure uh, why not go the whole way? <laughs> in for a penny, in for a pound. This bit news. This is almost not Mesozoic. We're right at the end of the Mesozoic. This is a description of a very rich track site in Alaska. Yeah. This is research in the journal Historical Biology by Dustin Stewart et al. And we will link to an article in Science Alert by David Neald, even though my notes here say Syene Alert, uh, but that's my fault. (laughs) The fossil site in question is a track site. So it is a geologic formation that preserves lots of trackways, footprints, particularly dinosaur footprints, the fossil site is known as the Colosseum. (laughs) That's a good name. It is part of the Cantwell Formation, which is latest Cretaceous, right in the Maastrichtian, right at the end of the Cretaceous period, in Denali National Park and Reserve. It is the largest track site in all of Alaska. The site was discovered in 2010. This paper is a formal description of What's going on with this site? Okay. A nice overview. What's what's the deal? They describe the outcrop itself. So the exposed rocks include several layers, one on top of the other, of steeply angled beds. So these are would have been originally horizontal, but over time they have been tilted. 
The rocks include mudstones, sandstones, shales, bentonites. The outcrop itself, vertically, is over 60 meters tall, 20 stories, and it covers 7,500 square meters, or 80,000 square feet, of area. Now, the Science Alert article uh, described that as a little bit bigger than a standard soccer pitch. (laughs) So anybody out there now, I don't know how big a soccer pitch is, so I took it upon myself to do some numbers uh, for everyone's benefit. That is about one and a half football fields and about six Olympic-sized swimming pools. (laughs) (laughs) How many bananas? In two-dimensional area. (laughs) The deposit, the outcrop, features... Lots of trackways, dinosaur footprints, as well as small fossils of plants, invertebrates. Uh, They mentioned shellfish, they mentioned pollen, lots of cool little things. As part of this study, they performed photogrammetry to produce 3D images of the tracks themselves, and they identified a whole bunch of different ichnotaxa, so trace fossil species, genera, and so on. These include... Just to name some, a bunch of hadrosaur slash ornithopods, so one of the main groups of herbivorous dinosaurs of the Cretaceous, including footprints of varying sizes, which might be different species of different sizes or different ages of hadrosaurs. They include footprints of horned dinosaurs, ceratopsids, which the authors note is the first formally described horned dinosaur evidence from this formation. Okay. And... Theropods, including dromaeosaurs, or, or, some, or if not directly dromaeosaurs, something like dromaeosaurs, large theropods, likely tyrannosaurs, at, at least one type of tyrannosaur up here, and lots of birds. So a whole diverse ecosystem of different dinosaur groups. They also did a geological analysis to get a sense of what the environment is based on the geology and the fossils. And they concluded that it would have been a floodplain environment with rivers, watering holes, that kind of stuff. And they did uranium lead dating on the bentonite. And we talked about that kind of dating back in our geologic dating episode, episode 167. And they determined that the site is about 69 million years old. Okay. So yeah. they're resolving the environment. They're getting a sense of the age. They're getting an overview of what the ecosystem was that lived here. It is a cool example of, let's describe and define this fossil deposit that hasn't had this done for it before. It's nice to get these descriptions because it's such a beautiful reminder of like, when you find a fossil site, and especially when you find one of these just treasure trove sites, the layer upon layer upon layer of different kinds of research and study mm-hmm. and different kinds of information you can draw from it just goes on and on and on. Like, yes. obviously, we can identify dinosaur footprints. That's what it's famously known for. But we can also resolve the age. We can look for pollen. Yep. Like, you can just you can just keep peeling back the layers And so often it feels like a lot of sites that gets overlooked for the big flashy thing that Mm -hmm. is typically making the, you know, the pollen might not make the news. Sure. But when you get to do one of these reviews, it bundles it all together to be like, here's how awesome this site is. Here's all the details. Just all the good bits. Yeah. And this site is particularly interesting because it's in Alaska. Yeah. So it is not only a 
cool, diverse dinosaur ecosystem. It is a high latitude mm-hmm. dinosaur ecosystem. And in the paper, they specifically mention comparing it with the Prince Creek Formation, which is the other super diverse dinosaur formation in Alaska, which is a bit farther north. And that together, these are now two fossil sites where we can get a sense of what was the diversity and ecology of dinosaur ecosystems in high, high latitudes during the latest Cretaceous. Yeah, very cool. Very neat. So uh, we did an episode about polar life, episode Mm -hmm. 114. Uh, this would have been great to mention in that episode. Oh, yeah. So now that you've heard this, go back and re-listen to episode 114. Yes. Yeah. Comment on on our video and and episode. Yes. What? You didn't even mention the (laughs) footprints. What's wrong with you? Now, I want to note, and we can pretend that this was on purpose, as the news went on, (laughs) it got more and more related to herbivores. Yes. There's more herbivory mentioned as the news <laughs> went on and on. I and planned that. Now, you plant that. Now, 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 at the end of the news, we can follow that trend and head into our main discussion about herbivores. We're going to start uh, with some vocabulary and terminology because that's fun. Because <laughs> that's where you start. <laughs> that's where you start. <laughs> Herbivores is a topic that feels like it needs no introduction. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, we're going to we're gonna have a lot of introduction. Yeah, we actually do need to. We're going to need to introduce <laughs> it. Uh, so many of us are familiar with the concept of herbivores. It is a literally elementary level concept in science and ecology. Most of us are taught as children the different types of diets in the animal world. Yes, yes. Carnivores who eat meat, herbivores who eat plants, and omnivores who eat both, which is a perfectly useful and valid way to think about how animals eat food and is also, like so many things at elementary level science, an extreme simplification of the real world scenario. Definitely helps sum up and put into context huge amounts of the way ecosystems on our planet work. Yes. And as soon as you zoom in, it breaks down pretty quick. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's let's talk about what it means to be an herbivore. What is herbivory? Generally speaking, right, sort of the classic definition, herbivores are animals that eat plants. Mm-hmm. More broadly, herbivory is the consumption of producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Typically phototrophs, things that are making their own nutrition and energy from sunlight. Things that photosynthesize. Yes, exactly. This includes plants, but it also includes uh, all sorts of algaes. It includes other photosynthesizing microbes like cyanobacteria and stuff. So there are herbivory also encompasses things that eat other photosynthesizing organisms. Yeah. The other thing that's notable about the term herbivore is that herbivore usually refers to animals specifically, even though there are non-animals that feed on plants Mm. and other photosynthesizing organisms. There are microbes that do, the bacteria and fungi. When those eat plants, they're usually not called herbivores. They're usually called pathogens. Yeah, yep. They're they're diseases, they're infections. Or uh, saprotrophs, if they're specifically going after decaying plant material. Similarly, there are plants that feed on plants. Yes. There are flowering plants, especially, that 
obtain their nutrients from other plants. Those are also not called herbivores. Those are called parasites. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's absolutely, there's some some gray areas and some some sort of arbitrary terminology. Well, we mentioned that in the, the parasitism episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, 102. That like, by definition, that is when one organism feeds on another without killing it typically. Right. But that when you zoom out to just symbiosis in general... Any interaction between two organisms could technically fall under the umbrella of symbiosis. Right. Depending on how you want to define it. So, like, how you actually put them into boxes can become kind of arbitrary pretty quickly. Yes. And herbivory is another topic that's very much like that. There's a lot of blurry edges and nuance to the subject. The other side of that nuance, when we look at animals specifically, which are typically what we're thinking of when we say herbivores... It is very rare for an animal to be just an herbivore. Yes. Uh, We've mentioned this on the podcast a whole bunch of times. There are tons of animals that are mostly herbivorous that will still dine on other things at times. There are tons of animals that are mostly carnivorous that will take some plant material. Most animal life on Earth is omnivorous. Yes. Technically speaking, there are a bunch of groups of animals that are quite dedicated herbivores, right? Deer mm-hmm. and, and similar hoofed animals are very dedicated herbivores, though they will famously occasionally eat birds and stuff. Manatees, very famous, dedicated, unique herbivores, though they will occasionally eat fish and stuff. Yeah. Butterflies are a group mm-hmm. that is a very dedicated herbivorous group, though they will sometimes eat carrion yep. and suck up the juices of rotting stuff. So even in the most dedicated groups, there's a, there, the, the animals don't know that they're supposed to fit into categories. Well, and it's I, I always used to think that when I was younger and they would list like famous examples of omnivores, like pigs and bears are the two like that I see most often. But if you watch them nine times out of ten, they're eating plants. Right. Like, I've I've never with my eyes witnessed a pig take meat from just naturally. Uh, mm-hmm. I've never seen that. I've never been shown a video. I've never, I've just never, se- I know they do it. Right. But I've not actually seen it. So it's like they are technically omnivores, but nine times out of ten, most days of the week... They're being herbivores. Well, and some animals, uh, bears uh, Mm -hmm. in some cases very famously, are herbivores at certain times of the year. Exactly. Yeah, being an herbivore is most efficient and most convenient a bunch of the time. But then when the salmon are going through the river now, okay, now we're piscivores. Now we're eating fish. So herbivory does sort of come and go and it comes in different degrees of herbivory. Yes. Also, another part of the nuance of herbivory is that there are tons of different types of herbivory. Not all herbivores are eating the same things. Mm-hmm. The version of this that we most commonly talk about on the podcast, it comes up most commonly in paleontology, especially since we're concerned with vertebrate animals, uh, and particularly big ones, is the difference between browsing and grazing. Yes. This has come up on the podcast a bunch. Browsers are animals that eat mostly leaves and twigs. Uh, the, the number that I often see when someone wants a hard definition is 90% of their diet or more is browse versus grazers, where if you want a hard definition, 90% of their diet or more is grass. That's a higher percentage than I, I would have thought that we were like more in the 70 ish or something. I've seen that. I've seen different numbers, but that, all right. 
And there are some animals that are very dedicated grazers versus very dedicated browsers. You will also see the term mixed feeding mm-hmm. because there has to be that. Yep. Because there are tons of animals that will do a bit of both. But even beyond browsing and grazing, there are tons of other terms that describe other types of herbivory. Here are some. Frugivores yes. specialize in eating fruit. Folivores are leaf specialists. Uh, this includes things uh, not only like big mammal browsers and stuff, but like caterpillars. Yeah. Uh, uh, grasshoppers, things like that, that are folivores. They, they're really good at eating leaves. There are also leaf mining insects. Oh, yeah. That live inside of a leaf. Absolutely. And eat it from inside. Similarly, there are xylophages, which eat wood. Termites are a very famous example of this. Granivores eat seeds. Lots of birds are specialized for this. I didn't give an example for frugivores, but also birds, uh, fruit bats, lots of things. There are nectarivores. Lots of insects are very famously nectar-feeding specialists. Uh, Butterflies do this. There are birds that do that. Musivores is a term for... Herbivores that feed on saps and other fluids. That's what I was going to guess. From plants. This is actually an extremely, like, there are tons of insects that have piercing mouth parts for poking into plant tissues and sucking the juices out. Yeah, like, that's the aphids. That's their whole gig. Also, mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. We -hmm. talked about mosquitoes back in the Sanguivores episode, 134, because they're famously bloodsuckers. But most of the time, those mouth parts are for plants. Also, I assume mucivore, that the origin of that is not mucus, but that's where my brain... Probably is. is. I I would imagine. Because that was where my brain went. I was like, is this saying you drink plant mucus? Because gross scientists. Gross. (laughs) And then, as I sort of hinted at before, there is also uh, the term algivores Mm -hmm. for things that eat algae. Snails are very famously... uh, There are also fish that are algae eaters. So this means not only are there tons of different ways that animals can be herbivorous, tons of different things that they can feed on. It also means that a single plant can provide a variety of food for a variety of different animals, for a variety of different herbivores. I saw it listed somewhere where it's like, yeah, one tree can provide sustenance for an entire community of herbivores because it's, it's huge and it's got all sorts of different sources of nutrition. Well, and it, and it is an interesting, you know, going back to us talking about like how some things are described as parasites of plants, Mm -hmm. but like a mosquito drinking our blood or drinking the sap or or fluids of a plant is the exact same act. (laughs) Like nothing different is happening there, but we distinguish them differently because we're animals and those are plants and we we treat them different for some reason. Yes. It's also, I, I will often hear herbivory described as a type of predation. Mm-hmm. This will come up in technical papers a lot, where you'll see herbivores described as predators of plants. Mm-hmm. And plants uh, have defenses to ward off predators, pred- predation, where other times you'll see the term predation defined separately, like you mentioned before, as predation kills the prey exactly whereas herbivory often doesn't kill the plant yeah so you you take a bite out of it or you take a piece of it and then you go uh, along and the plant is still alive is more similar to parasitism in that you are feeding off of and benefiting from and hurting the host but not killing them usually right even though there are absolutely forms of predation that also don't kill and and here are our blurry lines Mm -hmm. all of which is to say 
that the term herbivore is an extremely simple concept to understand until you start thinking about it. And then it turns out that there's a thousand different exceptions and nuances and, and little rules and such. This episode is an entire episode about herbivory as a grand concept. So we're not going to go into a whole lot of detail on a lot of that nuance in this episode, <laughs> but we are going to explore some of the common features and evolutionary trends and histories of herbivory on the whole. And speaking of which, herbivores are united by the type of stuff that they get their nutrition from. They are also united in the type of adaptations they need. Yes. This is something that can be, I think, easy to overlook about herbivory, that plant eating is a specialized lifestyle. Yep. Right. We've talked about on the podcast, every now and then we'll mention the term generalist, right? Generalized diets tend to describe animals that can just kind of take a little bit of whatever, right? Omnivores, opportunists, things like that. But to be a plant eater, to get all or most of your nutrition from plants, is a very specialized diet, which tends to be derived from more generalized diets. Yes. And indeed, as we'll get into later on, herbivory is not the default mm -hmm. most of the time. Yeah. So eating plants, feeding on plants requires certain specializations in getting the plants and processing the plants. But most importantly, the biggest thing that herbivores have to deal with is the problem of digesting plants. Yeah. Plants are hard to digest. Plant cells, though the walls of their cells and therefore just plant tissues in general, are composed of lots of cellulose. Cellulose is a type of carbohydrate. It is composed of many sugar molecules bonded together. The particular structure of cellulose is just very sturdy. Yes. It can be broken down. There are a whole class of enzymes called cellulases that can break down the structure of plant cellulose. Cellulases are produced by lots of microbes. Mm -hmm. Bacteria mm -hmm. can do it. Fungi can do it. When they are broken down, this can deconstruct cellulose into the sugars and fatty acids that are then helpful for nutrition. Also, if you're breaking down the cell walls, you are releasing all the stuff that's inside the cell. Absolutely. More proteins and sugars and stuff that are nutritious. Animals can't make cellulase. Nope. We do not. It is just a thing that we are unable to do, which means that generally speaking, animals on the whole are not good at eating plants. Yep. That we are. We have a hard time digesting plants. Fortunately, <laughs> we contain multitudes. Yes. Yes, indeed. <laughs> all herbivorous, especially all dedicated herbivorous animals rely on microbes, their gut flora, which I think is a very ironic term. Right. For the gut, for the microbiome. Traitors. <laughs> <laughs> this gut flora in their digestive system. Uh, we have this, right? Mm -hmm. All all animals, if you have a gut, you've got microbes in your gut and they tend to be helpful in breaking down food. If you didn't have a gut flora, you will have trouble eating some foods. Yeah, absolutely. Like people who have lost their, their gut microbes or, or a portion of it often have to specially like cut a bunch of things out of their diet because it will just make them sick. Yes. Cause it's now, now it's not being broken down mm -hmm. in there. It's just, it's like, it's like if all of your things you, you ate were chewing gum. Yes. Like yeah. None of that's breaking down. It's just, it's just <laughs> passing through as is, which is not good. So we, right. Us human beings are able to digest plant material 
by virtue of our gut flora. Dedicated herbivores tend to have specialized colonies in their digestive system, and they usually have specially adapted digestive tracts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Typically, this uh, means either having an expanded stomach region or expanded intestines, creating just big, I don't say vacuous spaces because mm-hmm. they're not really, but bigger, broader, more intense regions of the digestive tract where you just have tons and tons of microbes where plant material can sit and fester. Yes. Or to use the actual scientific term, ferment. Yep. Yep. That fermentation is is the process that the microbes are breaking down this plant material. Broadly speaking, this comes in two varieties that may be familiar terms to you. You have your foregut fermenters, which means it's happening earlier in the digestive system. Usually this means specialized stomachs. Uh, there, uh, there, There is a special structure in some animals called a rumen. Yes. That is part of this expanded stomach. For example, ruminants. Mm-hmm. Cows, sheep, deer, giraffes are, an- are foregut fermenters. Kangaroos also do this. Sloths. And, uh, funnily enough, hoatzins, the birds, are, uh, uh, from what I've been reading, famously one of the very few known dedicated bird herbivores. Interesting. To the point where they have fermentation chambers in their digestive tract, like a cow Yeah, they've got a cow stomach. (laughs) Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, they eat leaves. They're folivores. Yes, yeah. Which is always like... You know, we we are so used to birds eating seeds and fruit and stuff, mm-hmm. but when I find out about ones that eat like leaves and when like like geese and stuff will eat grass and like graze, yeah, and I'm always like, what are you doing? Weird. That's weird. Just but cut it out. They it makes sense that they would have members doing it too. Yeah. Incidentally, uh, one of the reasons why fruit is such a common thing to eat is because it tends to be not as difficult to digest. Yes. It is softer tissue. It. Uh, uh, You'll often hear the distinction between low fiber and high fiber foods. Yep, yep. Low fiber tends to be, there's less of that tough stuff mm-hmm. to have to digest. Because it's meant to be eaten. Right, because that's the point of fruit. <laughs> we want you to eat this. <laughs> <laughs> the other side of the thing, as opposed to foregut fermenters, are hindgut fermenters, which tend to have an expanded intestinal tract, often a structure called a cecum. Mm. This includes perissodactyls, horses, tapers, rhinos, elephants, rabbits, koalas do this. Also, termites I've seen listed as hindgut fermenters. Yes, yes. Uh, There are sort of trade-offs and differences between the different practices, but they both basically are approaches to the same thing. Having just a big chamber inside the body where you can maintain a massive colony of bacteria. So you just have fermenting plant material yeah. in the digestive system, just slowly being broken down. Well, and they're both also ways to lengthen the time the food has in your digestive tract. Yes. So that it can take as long as possible. So you can pull as much nutrition out of it as yes. possible. And if I remember correctly, uh, foregut fermenters tend to be better at mm-hmm. that. Yes. They're more efficient at getting nutrients out because this is happening earlier in the digestive tract. Well, and they also have the ability with like the rumen allows them to do chewing the cud sort of stuff. Yeah. So they spit it back up into their mouth, chew it some more, swallow it back down. Uh, I know there's a bunch of hindgut uh, digesters that aren't as efficient and do the same thing, but they have to wait until it comes all the way yeah. through. Rabbits do that. Mm-hmm. They eat poop. Yep. They're like, all right, 
Let's try it. Let's go through again. Now a second a second run through. Uh, I know koalas do that with their young. I think elephants will also do that. I so think so, yeah. It's just, if you do it a second time, you can kind of accomplish the same thing as the foregut digesters, but yes. you just you, have to wait we, a little longer. Leave it up to the listener to decide which one of those is grosser. Yeah, which one would you prefer? <laughs> weigh in. We'll put up a poll. <laughs> yeah, we'll put, get it, uh, yeah, let us know. Uh, what you would rather, uh, <laughs> one of the side effects of this expanded digestive system is that dedicated herbivores tend to also have big guts. Yeah. They tend to have big bodies. Big barrel shaped, uh, uh yeah. cavities in there. Herbivores are rarely like sleek <laughs> and, and svelte, right? You think of like a cow or an elephant or even termites. Yes. They tend to have a big abdomen where they have more room for that activity to be going on. So herbivores tend to just, even when they're small, tend to be big. Yes. Yep, yep. The other uh, class of adaptations that are talked about very commonly with herbivores is the part that comes before digestion, which is getting hold of and starting the process uh, with the mouth. Yes. Mouth parts tend to be very specialized in herbivores, in vertebrates, and especially in mammals, that usually means we're talking about teeth. Mm-hmm. We mentioned this a bunch in our teeth episode, episode 88. Herbivores often have very specialized teeth. This will often include uh, sometimes both, sometimes uh, mixing and matching of different degrees of snipping teeth in the front of the mouth that are good for cropping plants, you know, slicing. If you've ever tried to like bite through a leaf, yeah, but they're not easy. to. It helps to have specialized teeth that are good for that. And then also grinding teeth. Yep, yep. Flatter molars in the back of the mouth that are good for crushing and grinding. Clip it off and then grind it up. Yes, because again, it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's not only tough to digest, it's tough to chew plants. Well, yeah, there's a reason we build stuff out of plants. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. They are sturdy, <laughs> tough material. Like if you've ever tried to chew on like bark, mm-hmm. don't. Well, it's, I, or I, grass. I've done it with a leaf before as a kid. Yeah, I, or leaf, even I, leaves. Where I put it in my mouth and like... You know, because I was like, well, sh- surely it's edible. Things eat this. Right. And put it and memory just kind of wadding up. Like yeah. it, it just, just doesn't break down very easily. And I was just like, I, this is still a leaf. It's gross now, but it's still yes. mostly a leaf. <laughs> it's also not good for your teeth. Yeah. Because they're tough and they wear teeth down, which is also why so many dedicated herbivores have either high crowned teeth. Horses have just they're very tall teeth that wear down over time. Or ever-growing teeth. Yes. Uh, We see that in sloths. We see that in rodents. Their incisors especially are often ever-growing to counteract the fact that the food you're eating is really tough and it wears the teeth down. (laughs) Is akin to sandpaper. Well, and yeah, I mean, grass. Literally. (laughs) We mentioned phytoliths Mm -hmm. in the last episode uh, in the news. Grass literally has little bits of silica, little bits of glass in it. Yep. (laughs) So yeah, no, don't don't eat grass. No, no, no. If you're not a horse, don't eat grass. Outside of vertebrates, there are all sorts of other specialized herbivorous mouthparts besides vertebrates, and especially mammals today, uh, who are our like those are the big deal vertebrate herbivores in the world today. Tend to be mammals. Among invertebrates, it's insects. Yeah, insects are, and often if you look up like who are herbivores. The first things that are going to come up are going to be mammals and a variety of insects. Yep. Insects. There are tons of insect groups that are dedicated herbivores. Uh, They will often have mandibles that are good for slicing. You will get, like we talked about before, piercing and sucking mouthparts. 
which are specialized for poking through plant tissues and draining the juices out. You'll get all sorts of mouth parts for collecting nectar and things like that. Other invertebrates, I mentioned snails before. Snails are, snails and slugs are sort of, maybe not the other, there are plenty of invertebrates, but next to insects, snails and slugs are among the most famous herbivores uh, among invertebrates. Well, there's a reason why they are so often discussed in gardening circles. Yes. Because they are really good at just chewing through or licking through plants. Yes, and they tend <laughs> to have specialized mouth parts. That radula, mm-hmm. uh, their quote-unquote tongue, <laughs> is good for rasping mm-hmm. and scraping at plants, scraping up algae, things like that. And just in case no one's ever heard a radula described, it's basically a tongue-esque muscle but covered with a row of chainsaw-like teeth. Mm-hmm. So it's just a chainsaw tooth tongue. It's a chainsaw tooth tongue. So uh, uh, snails put are adorable. It, put in your requests now for an episode about chainsaw tooth tongues. I used to watch, because we would have them at the aquarium, and you could watch them like work at the algae. You know, we kept, kept it clean, but you would still get patches of algae. Yeah. And you'd see them on the glass, and it, you would go up close. You could see the radula just coming out and scraping, and you'd see the little clean trail of algae. And it was mesmerizing to watch that thing work. Well, it kind of, it makes me think of like a cat's tongue. Yeah. Which is sandpapery because it's supposed to get, you know, grit, dirt and stuff off mm-hmm. of, of the body. But this is meant to get other living things off of hard surfaces yeah. they don't want to not be off of. Well, and I know like big cats will use that to like lick meat off of, but like mm-hmm. get the last bit of yep. meat off a kill. it right off. And so it's very similar, actually. <laughs> Snails are the big cats of the little world. That's, they're, they're, you heard it here. <laughs> And then, of course, uh, there are just all sorts of other adaptations for accessing plants for herbivores. Tons of herbivores are climbers, flyers, insects especially, diggers who will dig up roots and stuff. Plenty of herbivores are tall. We did a whole episode about giraffes, 159. Elephants knock trees over there. There's all sorts of different physical and behavioral adaptations for for animals to get access to plants. There are insects that have symbiotic relationships with things like fungi to break plants down before they eat them yep. so now that they can eat them. Yes. There are be- ambrosia beetles do this. And then ants, yep. uh, very famously, episode 149, we talked about what well, we mentioned it. There was a lot to talk about in that episode. Uh, farming ants. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've heard that at least for... Um grass cutting ants and like you know leaf cutting ants are the famous famous mm-hmm. but like grass cutting ants in some areas are v- for biomass of grass removed the top herbivore in their in many of the environments they're found yeah. in like they outcompete the hoofed mammals in the amount of grass <laughs> they're taking on yes all of these physical adaptations to herbivory become very important for us when we start trying to identify herbivores in the fossil record. Yes. Because diet can be difficult to assess in the fossil record when we can't just watch the animals eat. And if we're being honest, we've said that a bunch of times where it's like, well, yeah, today we can just watch them eat. Even today, Mm -hmm. we can't actually just watch the animals eat. Nope. But you maybe can watch an animal eat for a little bit if it's not one that's already living on your farm. So... A lot of the same ways that we identify herbivores in the fossil record, we also use today. Well, because there's been stories of people like finding gut contents in animals and going, well, surely that's a weird anomaly or that's a mistake or something. And then finally going, oh, no, I guess they do just eat that. Yeah. So gut contents, famously, we've talked about in the the podcast before, in the fossil record, we will find uh, one of the very few like sure fire. This is evidence this animal ate plants 
or whatever it ate is finding plants in the gut. Yes. Also coprolites. <laughs> finding plants in the poop is almost as good as finding them right there in the gut. Oh man, how many fossil animals do you think were having to use the hindgut strategy of re-eating the poop and just removing potential coprolites? Yeah, from the fo- how many of the gut contents that we found <laughs> were, on were their coprolites? Right? Yeah, this, was, this was pass number two. <laughs> it's t- saying to the the nut this, next to it first time. This yeah, <laughs> this was almost. Uh, uh, there's a term for gut contents that I'm forgetting, and then it was a cololite mm-hmm, found, mm-hmm. which is sometimes for gut contents. And then it missed the chance to be a cololite and became a coprolite. And then it got a chance again. Yes. Uh, there are also regurgitolites. So same uh, back and forth. <laughs> Often when we look at fossil animals, we're looking at the physical adaptations. Teeth, very commonly the big one. Mouth parts of invertebrates. Body shape. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I said, herbivores tend to have barrel shaped bigger bodies. Skull and jaw shape tends to be modified to help with the process of grabbing and often chewing uh, plant material. Teeth can also provide additional evidence in the form of isotopes. This is another thing we've mentioned before. The chemistry of your teeth reflects the chemistry of what you're eating. Mm -hmm. So fossil isotope studies are often used to distinguish browsers from grazers, for example. Also, we mentioned that eating plants wears down teeth. You can see microscopic patterns of wear on teeth which will be different depending on what an animal was eating. Yeah, the way you're using your teeth stresses them in different fashions. Yes. And that leaves marks on the teeth. So we can get a sense, looking at that, the, the tooth wear, of not only what kind of things you were eating, but how you were eating them. Yep, yep. You know, what, how were you chewing, things like that. Yes, yes. I know another thing that will be kind of a, a potential or anecdotal evidence that will often be cited is predator or prey. Because if you're hunting, you tend to have certain features because you're having to pursue. Right. And if you're a prey, you have different features because you're having to look for danger and run away. Yes. And we don't tend to see... If you are a specialized herbivore, you're not chasing things. Mm -hmm. So we tend not to see those predatory features. It's not a guarantee that you are a dedicated herbivore, but it, it... we tend to see those coincide, so... And it helps. Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, as always, the more clues we get. Yes. But, yeah, herbivores often are not having those forward-facing eyes and lithe bodies mm-hmm. and the kinds of things you think of with big predators. It's, it's kind of a weird concept that it takes a different kind of body to chase and a different kind of body to run away. Yes. <laughs> yep, and a different kind of body to stand there and eat all of a tree. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now... In addition to discussing what herbivores do and sort of what their adaptations and and what what natural selection provides them with and how we study them, another thing that I want to touch on, because I think it's a really important part of the discussion, is what herbivores mean for ecosystems. Yeah. This is a thing. We did a diet episode before. We did sanguivores, blood-eating animals. And though that's a relatively rare dietary strategy yes uh and sanguivory sanguivores tend not to be major components of their environment if you removed them there probably aren't going to be major detrimental impacts collapses yeah Mm -hmm. herbivory is not only extremely widespread i just think how many herbivores can you count yeah right but it is essential to ecosystems as we know them yeah 
not just because they have you know made it that way, but herbivores are eating producers. Yes. Herbivores eat the most energetic food in an environment. There is a concept in ecology that is sometimes called the energy pyramid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? We talk about trophic levels in ecology, and trophic levels just means it refers to what you're eating, right? Plants and other photosynthesizers are at the lowest trophic level. They eat the sun, and then above them are plant eaters, and then above them are meat eaters that eat them, and then above them might be more and more. And you have these trophic levels where, you know, a big predator, an apex predator will often be put at the top level, your plants at the bottom. And then, of course, this gets utterly confused by omnivores and decomposers and stuff. Yes, and ones that, you know, parasitize ones further up the... (laughs) Absolutely. But broadly speaking, one of the things that happens, the higher you go in your trophic level, the less energy you're getting per unit of food. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Every time an organism takes in some form of nutrition to convert into energy, energy is lost in the process. Yes, absolutely. No, no organism is a perfect, uh, converts 100% of the potential energy in its food, which means that every level you go up the chain, you lose some energy. Yes. Which means that plants are loaded with nutrition and energy that they are getting from the sun basically for free. They don't even have to kill anything to do it. It is an extremely uh, green (laughs) way to acquire their energy. Herbivores are the ones that bring that energy and nutrition into the rest of the ecosystem. Yes. You can't have big predators if you don't have herbivores. Uh, Yeah, I think that's the... You can't have dedicated carnivores yes unless they don't are... have dedicated herbivores yes and like it's it's an interesting dynamic because you're losing energy as go you go up but the reason it's useful to be a carnivore you know predator is because the herbivores have concentrated yes all that energy into one pig so now you can you can eat that pig and get it all at once yes. and not only do herbivores support predators they also support scavengers mm-hmm. and decomposers herbivores are commonly some of the most abundant animals in an ecosystem. This is a thing we've mentioned before. There are a billion zebras for every one lion. Yes. That's not the exact number, (laughs) but there's a lot because you can, you know, plants, a a lush ecosystem of photosynthesizers can support a grand population of herbivorous animals, which are then just packets of nutrients that predators can feed on, scavengers can feed on herbivores form this very important link in the way that modern ecosystems function. Well, and uh, this is the way it just clicked in my brain is that plants are taking the power of the sun and turning it into plant. Like Sunny D. Yes. They are taking solar energy and making it into biomass in the form of plants. Yes. Other juices are available. <laughs> herbivores are the ones that make that sun energy available to the rest of non-plant things. Absolutely. If you're, if yeah, you're that's not, the, it's the converter. Exactly. If you're not a plant, you can't make use of the sun. Nope. If you're not a photosynthesizer, you can't. Herbivores are the ones that broach that to the rest of Anomalia. <laughs> yes. And, and beyond. And beyond. Yep. So, like, they are the ones that let us play along with the plant kingdom. Yes. In it enjoying re- the sun. It absolutely brings carnivorous plants into a different light, right? so to speak. Because you give that back. Yes. <laughs> no, 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 no. You thought you were getting away with it, didn't you? <laughs> you stole what is ours. <laughs> also, another really important 
point about herbivory is not only is herbivory extremely impactful for animals in the broader ecosystem, herbivory is extremely impactful on plants. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Plants are an essential part of this equation, and they are... Plants are shaped... The the plant part of an ecosystem is shaped just as much by herbivory as the animal part of an ecosystem is shaped. Yes. Uh, In a very sort of obvious first thought way, plants evolve to combat herbivory. Mm -hmm. They evolve defenses, thorns and spines and hairs and toxins... Plants will evolve like mimicry to look like dead plants. Their seeds will develop hard shells. <laughs> They'll develop to be tall like trees. So spicy plants that we love so much as humans. Yes, that's <laughs> supposed to make you not want to eat it. <laughs> but so we're weird. Plants will evolve all sorts of stuff to combat the effect of herbivores. The distribution of plants is greatly impacted by herbivorous animals. This is a huge subject that we won't go into in depth here, but I pulled just a couple of examples Uh, while I was looking around. I found one study that showed that in various regions, the more deer you have, the lower the abundance and diversity of shrubby plants. Yeah. That you just lose that section of the plant ecosystem. They are (laughs) overhunted by the deer. There was another study that I saw that was really cool that showed that in some places, the higher you go in elevation, like up a mountainside or something, once you get above a certain elevation, there will sometimes be an increased diversity of plant types. Or, uh, yes, I have heard or of that. different plant types. And the reason, at least in the study they were looking at, that they found is that that Elevation is where the insects stop being able yes. to access them. Like climactically, there's a line there. And yeah. The insects can't survive. Insects up there. can't make it up there. <laughs> so now that's where all those plants grow. The it was the way that the paper described it was there is an increase in the abundance and diversity of palatable plants. <laughs> so plants will often have to change where they grow yeah. in response to the presence of herbivores. But then, of course, on the other hand, I don't want to make it sound like it's all bad news for the plants. There are cases where herbivores can actually improve the diversity. Uh, A very famous example of this is with big grazing animals. Yep. Uh, Bison uh, is, uh, again, one example that I saw when looking through papers. There have been studies that have found that in regions where bison have been removed, the diversity of plants decreases. Yes. The plants become more homogenous. And if you put bison back, the diversity of plants goes up again because the bison are specializing in eating the really common plants that crowd out all the other ones. Exactly. They make it a more even playing field for those others to have space. So when you have bison, you have a great diversity of plants that the bison don't want to eat that much. Which means that for herbivores, because you know that we've talked about those ecosystems that are a fire regime ecosystems where like they need regular burnings to like clear out underbrush but also just to make space for new plants to come in yeah herbivores do that herbivores Herbivores are fires yes (laughs) (laughs) they come in and clear out some of the bigger plants that wouldn't let new plants grow herbivores can clear out old growth big ones like elephants will just straight up knock down trees go hey forest you need to scoot back a little bit (laughs) yeah you need to back up you need to check your space And then, of course, even more famously than that, there are tons of ways that plants benefit from herbivores. Yes. Herbivores disperse seeds, right? What, like you said, that's 
one of the th- reasons why fruit is so tasty. Yeah, they made a special thing for herbivores. Eat this. <laughs> well, if you're going to eat us, maybe it can be a two-way street. Take some seeds with you <laughs> and go poop them out somewhere else. You can even eat them twice. Yeah. You can eat that twice because the seed is, has a real hard coat in it. Uh, very similarly, pollinators, mm-hmm. uh, insects, birds, bats will be will be picking up po- or sometimes eating pollen, other mm-hmm. times just picking mm-hmm. it up and helping the plants to disperse. Herbivores are also a ready source of fertilizer. Yep. It's like a one herb is going to, while you're standing there chowing down on leaves, you are A, d- making a mess, like d- scattering leaf bits on the ground. And also there's a good chance you're going to poop. Mm-hmm. And now you are contributing fertilizer and nutrients right back to the plant you're eating from. Also speaking about like beneficial relationships, can't skip over like the ridiculous relationship between plants and ants. Yes. Like we're gonna make ourselves your home and make meals for you, so you'll be our bodyguards. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And on top of all that, herbivores, because they can do the one thing that plants can't do most of the time, which is move. Mm-hmm. Not only can they disperse seeds and pollen, they can also disperse nutrients. Yes, right. A bison or an elephant or a bunch of antelope or something are going to eat a bunch of food over here go for a walk and distribute those nutrients around the ecosystem. Yeah. Which is helpful for more plants, which then it helps to build the ecosystem. Yeah, because if you didn't have, or if you just had an island with only plants growing on it, you would end up seeing concentrated spots where the the nutrients tends to go because Mm -hmm. of either the water flow or whatever it is. Herbivores help spread it more evenly across the landscape. Yes. And these are patterns that are true in modern ecosystems. This has been true for a long, long, long time. When we Mm -hmm. look at dinosaur ecosystems, we see very similar patterns, similar aspects of plants, similar features in the animals, similar structures in both insects and vertebrates. We have big herbivores and small herbivores supporting smaller populations of large carnivores. This ecosystem structure is a regular feature Mm -hmm. of ecosystems throughout the history of our planet. And it means that when we're studying ancient ecosystems, part of that equation has to be, all right, what were the plants and the herbivores doing? Yes, absolutely. To help us to understand it. Now, with all that being said, it stands to reason that if we go far enough back in time, that was not true. Yep. And indeed, there was a time early in the mists of of ancient Earth before we had herbivory the way that we have herbivory today. So after the break, we are going to travel way back in time and explore the earliest evidences of how herbivory as we know it got started. In order for us to talk about the origins of herbivory, we first have to address the origins of herb. Yeah. When did herb come around? When did herb <laughs> come around? Now, for the for the plant folks out there, I yes, technically we're not talking about herbs. Herbs is, is a specific thing. The oh, earliest <laughs> the earliest photosynthesizing organisms were microbes. Mm-hmm. Microbes in we have evidence of microbial life photosynthesizing going way, way, way back into the Proterozoic and Archean times. These would have 
throughout history have included things including but not limited to cyanobacteria, uh, algaes, various different protozoans. For a long, long time in Earth history, we have fossil evidence of mats of photosynthesizing microbes. Yep, yep. So algal mats and bacterial mats. This is how stromatolites form, some of the oldest fossil evidences that we have. Later on in Earth history, as we get closer to more modern times, we start to see bigger forms, things like macroalgae. Yep, yep. Seaweed type stuff. And for much of that, early time period there were probably other things eating those things oh yeah because why wouldn't you absolutely yeah there were microbes eating microbes uh, for sure but it isn't until we start getting towards out the ediacaran the cambrian that we start seeing evidence of animal life yes eating photosynthesizing life yeah i know there's like evidence because uh, like the, the bacterial mats on the the seafloor were a common thing in the ediacaran mm-hmm. and i know there are like fossil trails through those mats, right, clearing the mat out. <laughs> like the snails you were describing, yep. going through and eating them. Now, we have, right, the Ediacaran period and then the Cambrian period are where we start getting our first signs of complex ecosystems with animals in them. Most of the fossil animals that we have from those time periods include things like filter feeders, predators, scavengers, there's very little in the way of definitive signs of herbivory. Yes. There are something, there are disturbed mats. Uh, sometimes we'll find fossils of animals that we think that could have been something that was eating plant material. Often uh, we interpret benthic organisms from this time, so seafloor dwellers, as being often detritivores. Yes. So eating whatever they can find on the seafloor, which might have included algae and cyanobacteria. So a lot of trilobites, worms, early crustaceans, uh, early mollusks like gastropods are likely to have been doing some early herbivory. Well, and if you're filter feeding or, or you know, catching things like corals do, you're going to catch a lot of little photosynthesizing right. you know, plankton. Uh, but there's very little in the way of signs of dedicated herbivory. There are exceptions. I did find there was a study earlier this year in 2023. Hmm. That described a... I'm so glad we talked about Radulae. Yeah. A fossil Radula from an ancient mollusk uh, from... I think this was the Cambrian. And where the shape of this Radula seems to be convergent with modern snails, modern gastropods, who are specialized for piercing and sucking algal tissues. Oh, cool. So there does seem to have been potentially some specialized adaptations for herbivory going way back to the Cambrian Ediacaran, the start of animal ecosystems. Awesome. But in the absence of those clear adaptations, most discussions of patterns of herbivory in the early Paleozoic and before that come not from studying the animals, but from studying the plants. (laughs) There has been, for example, and I think we've mentioned this before, as you move through the Ediacaran and the Cambrian, those stromatolites, those bacterial mats, become way less common. Yep. They are super abundant in earlier parts of the geologic record, and then they almost disappear in many places around the world at that time, which is interpreted as likely being due to an increase in grazers. Yes. There are more herbivores eating those mats, just like the deer eating those shrubs. 
in the early Cambrian, I found one paper that discussed there is a radiation, a sudden increase in diversity of phytoplankton with spines <laughs> on them, which might be a defensive adaptation, maybe in response to rising numbers of herbivores. I also saw one paper that discussed a, as we move from the Cambrian to the Ordovician, there is an increase in the diversity of seaweeds, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which might also be a response to selective pressure being put on by there being more herbivorous animals in the seas. Yes. So there were almost certainly all sorts of different animals eating plants or plant-like things in the early Paleozoic in those oceans. Lots of invertebrates. I believe there are some evidences for potentially a grazing fish back in like the Devonian. But in the early Paleozoic, signs of herbivory are relatively rare. Yeah. Incidentally, I'm going to, you know that our discussion is going on land here in just a second. I'm going to stick to the ocean for just a minute because I learned an interesting thing that fits really nicely here. That general lack of specialized herbivores in the ocean lasted almost to the present. Yeah. That during the Paleozoic, there are just very little evidence of specialized herbivores in ocean environments. That is also true in the Mesozoic. Yeah. We see things there. I know there are like urchins that start developing a more diversity of grazing habits, but specialized vertebrate herbivores in the oceans don't really become a major thing until the Cenozoic era. Yeah. After the age of reptiles in the early Cenozoic, we see the expansion of modern style coral reefs. Yep. This is also when we start to see expansion of aquatic angiosperms, Mm -hmm. flowering plants. And in the early Cenozoic, we finally see radiations and diversification of vertebrate herbivores in the oceans. This is, especially most of this is fish. Yeah. Herbivorous fish like surgeon fish, rabbit fish, parrot fish. Also in the early Cenozoic, we get sirenians, yep. manatees and dugongs, which are big deal herbivores. And then when this starts to happen, we start to see major changes in reef ecosystems and in shallow ocean plant ecosystems. But herbivory didn't, like we didn't get herbivory in the sort of big sense that we think of today in oceans until after the Cretaceous period. And it's it is notable that even still today, herbivory in the ocean is different than it is on like absolutely the dynamic. The biggest animals in the ocean aren't the specialized herbivores, right? Whilst the biggest animals on land basically always are the specialized herbivores. Yeah. So it's a very weird, and it's you know it is another on the long list of odd things that are different between land and sea. Well, and it's also one of the reason that it really took me by surprise is that the ocean, so much of the time, the ocean either gets to something first Mm -hmm. or doesn't get it at all. Yes. This is a weird case where, yeah, there are specialized herbivores in the ocean, big specialized vertebrate herbivores. Land did it way before the ocean really yes. took off in that respect. And way more times. and in Yeah, more- which is a very strange thing to think about. The ocean usually isn't the one lagging behind. Which now has my brain wanting to connect, like, draw my yarn board between why <laughs> herbivory and you socialism are so different between <laughs> land and sea. Well, you know, it... 
probably has to do with a very similar shared factor. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons why almost certainly herbivory didn't become in the ocean like it is on land is because plants tend not to live in the ocean. Yeah. Plant diversity is largely a land thing, especially big mass, major ecosystems full of plants. So in order to track the history of herbivory in the big style, the way that we think about it with modern ecosystems, we have to go back again, (laughs) back to the Paleozoic to when plants made it to land. Yeah. Early plants made it onto land by the Silurian period. There's, There's been discussion of whether they were there earlier than that. Certainly by the Silurian period. Also, we have early land animals at that time. Invertebrates, for sure, had started making their way onto land in the Silurian. This is over 400 million years ago. In the late Silurian into the Devonian period, so 400 to 350 million years ago or thereabouts, is when we start to see the first fossil evidences of land herbivory. Yeah. The evidences come in multiple forms, as we discussed earlier. Some of it is coprolites. Mm -hmm. We have fossil arthropod coprolites from back then with spores in them or plant bits in them, evidence that arthropods were eating plants. Also, there are fossils of damaged plants. Yeah. Plants that have damage on them from piercing and sucking mouthparts. This is mostly, in these early days, limited to... Uh, you know, devouring spores and then feeding on plant stems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, fungal stems. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's not what we're talking about today, but that's also in there. Like, prototaxites and the big fungi back then were also getting pierced and bored into. Okay. As time goes on, plants start to evolve the more familiar features. Roots, leaves, seeds, true parts of plants as we know them. Those have shown up by the Devonian period. And then there's a little bit of a lag. And in the Carboniferous period after that, we start to see damage on those kinds of features as well, indicating that they are being eaten. And we get more coprolites and gut contents showing that different animals are devouring plant stuffs. As we get more evidence of it, it also starts to appear on different parts of the plants. We get evidence of different styles of herbivory. So in this devonian into the carboniferous we're seeing this expansion yeah of types of herbivores among invertebrates it's just becoming more common and more diverse just bit yep. by bit i also saw a note in one paper that i read that in the carboniferous we also start seeing things like fossil leaves that have little hairs on them uh-huh, uh-huh. which are often defensive structures yes uh, they, they are they're often they can be like a physical obstacle but they can also be associated with glands that secrete various chemicals yeah, yeah, uh, yeah toxins yeah. and saps and stuff so we may also be seeing the origins of plants defending themselves against herbivores another clue that that's what was going on yes these early herbivores were mostly and most likely Myriapods, so uh, millipedes, centipedes, and their early ancestors. Arthropleura, the famous giant millipede of the Carboniferous, I believe has been found with plant bits in gut contents. Makes sense. Early arachnids, I saw mites mentioned Mm -hmm. in a number of discussions, and early insects. Yes. This diversity continues to expand, both in terms of those groups become more diverse, as we have discussed before, episode 99, Evolution of Insects. 
Uh, also, 123, we talked about spiders. Yeah. So if you want your arachnid fix. So as we're in the Carboniferous and then the Permian period, the late part of the Paleozoic era, we are now seeing this expansion of herbivorous groups of invertebrates eating all sorts of different plants. Yes. As new groups of plants appear, they start becoming part of the herbivorous diet. Later on, when we get to the Mesozoic era, later in the Mesozoic era, we see the rise of flowering plants. That's episode 57. And the expansion of flowering plants coincides with massive diversification in tons of insect groups. You get your orthopterans, uh, grasshoppers and, and crickets and such, sea big radiations, the true bugs, beetles, ants, bees, butterflies. Insect diversity is tied very closely to diversity of plants in their environments. So unsurprisingly, the earliest herbivores in land ecosystems are invertebrates. Arthropods um, are, seem to be making up a huge portion of this. They're absolutely, uh, are probably worms and gastropods and things getting in on that as well. And then eventually, vertebrates catch up. Yes. Vertebrates, fish make it onto land in the Devonian and give rise to the earliest tetrapods, our earliest land-dwelling vertebrates. Episode 77, Fins Defeat. Like those earlier ecosystems we discussed, the earliest tetrapods on land, your acanthostegas and your tiktolics and things like that, seem to include lots of carnivores, scavengers, probably omnivores, but again, herbivory isn't a thing that is present in a big way right off the bat. Herbivory is a specialized lifestyle. The earliest signs of herbivory in tetrapods seem to start showing up just over 300 million years ago. By this point, plants have absolutely taken over the land. You've got your big forests and stuff. Invertebrates, early insects, and others have already been doing the herbivory thing for a while. And then vertebrates start getting in on that action. We start to see some examples of vertebrates that seem to have specializations for herbivory. Animals like Desmatodon and Diadectes, which are classified as among the earliest amniotes mm -hmm. or near amniotes. So amniotes is the group that includes reptiles and mammals. Edaphosaurids are early members of the synapsid lineage, which is the lineage that eventually includes mammals later on down the line. These animals often have very distinct-looking teeth. Yeah. They have, uh, they'll often have incisor-like teeth in the front of the mouth that project forward a little bit, which seems to be very good for nipping up plants. And then they'll have bigger teeth in the back, like molars, for crushing or grinding up plant material. Also, in a lot of these early potential herbivores, the teeth occlude with each other which means that the teeth meet as the mouth closes, yeah. which is not a common feature in a lot of early tetrapods. Mm -hmm. uh, the teeth don't like touch yes. as the mouth closes because you don't necessarily need that to happen if what your teeth are for is grabbing a fish or a bug or something. Yeah, you just need to be close enough together that there's uh, less space than the prey item. <laughs> yes, but if you're chewing up plants or snipping plants or crushing plants, that occlusion between the teeth becomes more and more important. Yeah. Some of these early animals also show patterns of wear on the teeth that suggest grinding motions. Nice. Uh, I saw specifically mentioned forward and backward patterns of striations on the teeth that suggest that they were doing some sort of chewing 
grinding up those uh, their food. We actually mentioned earlier in a, in a recent episode, there was a study from this year that reported uh, potentially the earliest signs of herbivory in synapsids specifically. Nice. This was an animal called Melanodaphodon from the late Carboniferous of Ohio, which have skull and teeth that seem to indicate herbivorous habits. And another feature that is seen in a number of these early, maybe, herbivores is that they tend to have big bodies. Mm -hmm. They're more barrel-shaped, like we see in herbivores today, where they may be expanding their digestive tract to make room for the microbes that they need to digest those plants. Yes, yes. Well, it's why I always love that that famous comparison between uh, Dimetrodon and I always... Edaphosaurus. Edaphosaurus, yep, yes. That's the other one. <laughs> yeah, that it, it, they always compare them because one is they're very similar overall shaped organisms. Yeah, they even have the big sail. And then one is clearly built to yeah. chase things but down and chew animals this, up. This one has a giant head and a smaller body <laughs> and that one has a tiny head and yeah. a big body. I love it. It's such yes. a... It's, that's probably my, one of my favorite go-tos for herbivore predator like it, you, mm-hmm. you, you might not be familiar with both of these, but this is this is what we're talking about. Yes. Now, in this early the early history of herbivorous vertebrates, it can be very difficult to tell. We rely on physical anatomy, which can be helpful, but can also be misleading. Mm-hmm. One paper I was re- made this exact point and pointed to an early reptile called Proterosaurus that has teeth that you'd expect of a carnivore, but has been found with plants in gut contents. Yeah. Yep. It is also very difficult to distinguish omnivory from herbivory. Yes. Were you eating plants sometimes, or were you getting more and more specialized towards plants? It is very likely that omnivory is a prerequisite to herbivory. Yeah. That the ancestors of herbivores were eating a bunch of different things, including plants, and then gradually getting more specialized in plants. That study we mentioned uh, with Melanodaphodon, that early synapsid omnivore slash herbivore, also noted that uh, it's possible that durophagy yep, yep. was important in some lineages in evolving herbivory, eating hard things, yes. right? eating snails or bugs or stuff that require you to crush stuff with your teeth may have provided a morphological adaptation that then became helpful in some lineages for eating plants. Yeah, if you can crack a snail, you can crack a nut. Right. Well, well maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you can grind an exoskeleton, you can grind a leaf. <laughs> so we start seeing hints of these herbivorous adaptations and habits in the late Carboniferous and then in vertebrates. And then we move into the Permian and tetrapod herbivores become much more widespread and common. We start seeing more and more groups with these features, uh, cutting teeth, often leaf-shaped teeth, which is another ironic, that's just, that seems very rude. Yep, yep, we're making a statement. Yeah, we really are. Crushing molars, teeth that occlude together, wear patterns, broad barrel-shaped bodies, all these features start to become more common. Some of these are in early reptiles or near reptiles, things like Captorhinus and Piraeosaurs. We also see them in early synapsids, uh, including Therapsids, the early ancestors of true mammals. Edaphosaurus, the one that you mentioned that is like Dimetrodon but plants. Mm-hmm. 
Cotylorhynchus, which I, th- oh man, I might have the wrong one in my head, but I think that's one of the ones with a tiny head and a giant, even more oh, so yes, than a Daphosaurus, yes, yeah. the ones with the, just the little tiny heads. Where it's, it's just, it's like you took a, a general lizard kind of shape and then just scaled those two bars to the opposite yes. end. Uh, we also see Dicynodonts, like Lystrosaurus, uh, which often will also have beaks. Yeah. That are a common feature in herbivorous animals that can do the same thing as those front incisor-like teeth. Very good nipping structure. There seems to have been, in the lead-up to the Permian, many independent origins of herbivory, which is another cool feature of herbivory that it is, you know, we've had episodes before where we've talked about features that are highly convergent, things that have shown up over and over again. We did an episode recently where we were like, this is an incredibly common convergent feature. Uh, Live birth, I think, Mm. is the one that I'm thinking of. Mm -hmm. Episode 154. Herbivory has evolved over and over and over and over again. This is a feature that has shown up convergently in tons of different groups, and that is in full swing back in the Permian period. Diets are interesting that way because that happens with a lot of diet specializations that mm-hmm. you see groups go, ah, I also can eat this and this lineage is going to get real good at it. Yeah. We also start to see divergent patterns of evolution, uh, different approaches to herbivory. Yeah. So some of these early herbivores have teeth that I've seen related to iguanas, mm-hmm. uh, which are some of our top herbivorous reptiles in the world today yes which are for cropping and shearing of plants whereas others back then have more crushing and grinding teeth which is a lot like what we see mammals doing in particular today yeah yep so we're starting to see these this diversity different styles and then also convergent adaptations for eating plants also another point that was brought up in one of the papers that i read about this there will be links in the blog post these animals were presumably using gut microbes, right? Like because yeah. uh, you know they shouldn't have been able to digest plants any better than we can as animals, which raises the question of how that got started. Yes. Uh, that, of course, is an extremely difficult thing to study in the fossil record. We don't get fossils of gut flora. But I did come across some discussions of hypotheses, how these early tetrapods might have gotten the kind of gut microbes they needed to break down plants. It's possible that early herbivores evolved from omnivores uh, for sure, but in particular I've seen detritivores mentioned. Yeah. Yep, that yep. if you were eating already decaying plant material, that's already going to have microbes on it. That are, that are breaking are it down. Breaking it down, and that could, you know, ingesting that could be the start of what eventually becomes a symbiotic relationship. Well, yeah, because if they, if they can survive in your gut and you keep bringing new plants into your gut, then, then you're just bringing the food right to them. Then they could you could eventually get a, a, a mutualistic situation where now they prefer to be in your gut. Yes. <laughs> uh, this seems to be, a, 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 in particular, a really good hypothesis for arthropods. Yes. Because a lot of insects and other arthropods are detritivores. Just eating basically any organic matter on the ground. You can easily see how they might have picked up microbes. And in that respect, another hypothesis for how vertebrates might have gotten started is eating arthropods. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> so if you're eating animals that are full of these microbes, then you're bringing them into your gut once again. Yeah, that is always such a fun and, and bizarre concept when a, a 
key fundamental aspect of your life is based off of getting something from the prey you eat other than just nutrition just food yeah, yeah you're actually picking up something like, you need you know we have lots of toxic animals that do that but the idea of the earliest you know uh, uh, beginning dedicated herbivorous vertebrates needing to eat enough insects to supplement you know and and be able to digest the plants that they also take in is fascinating yeah and i've seen it pointed out in some of these studies that a lot of these groups of early tetrapods that became herbivores are closely related to groups that seem to be insectivores. Yeah. So it seems very likely that some of these groups may have evolved from ancestral insect eaters, and that could be a pathway through which they were getting those microbes that eventually became irreplaceable, that eventually became inextricable. Yes. That's part of your gut flora. Yeah. That that's very cool, and it's especially notable because, like nowadays, you know, it is a built-in thing to the life cycles of plant eaters. Mm-hmm. But they still have to get those gut microbes, yeah, like, usually from the parents, or but sometimes other sources. But like, they are not born with them; that you have to be colonized, and then you have them. So it, this would be the earliest version of that, but you were getting it from your outside environment. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I like that a lot. Like all the other stuff with herbivory. That probably happened many, many times. We see this big diversification of different lineages evolving herbivory, and it is no coincidence that in the Permian, especially in the later Permian, is when we see the earliest fossil evidence of truly modern-style ecosystems. This is the earliest period in Earth history where we get truly big land animals. Yes. And it is also the first time in Earth history where we get truly big land predators. Because, like we said before, you can't have big predators if you don't have big herbivores. And you can't have big herbivores if you don't have those specializations that allow you to really take advantage of the energy and nutrition that you can get from plants. Man, what were their guts doing? Were you fore or hind gut? Like... Oh. oh, yeah. Who, probably all sorts of different yeah. strategies. Man, I would love to know that we had the same kind of like split of mm-hmm. a bunch of them doing one, a bunch of them doing the other back then, too. So we've got our earliest herbivores in the ocean of varying types, arthropods eating plants uh, starting in the mid Paleozoic and then tetrapods catching up by the late Paleozoic and then giving rise to modern type ecosystems. From which point herbivores take over the planet. Yes. You just get all sorts of different lineages of herbivores, herbivores specializing in different types of plants, different types of environments, and shaping ecosystems as they go. The Paleozoic is followed by the Mesozoic, which was home to tons of very dedicated large herbivores, notably dinosaurs of all different kinds, And then the Cenozoic, the age of mammals, is able to be the age of mammals because there are all sorts of dedicated mammalian herbivores on land and then also some in the ocean. Yes. Joining the new (laughs) diversifications of herbivorous fish. Finally getting in on the act. (laughs) Now, one of the other things, because there is so much of this complex evolutionary history with herbivores, there are a ton of studies that have looked into trends in the evolution of herbivory Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. where do we see convergent traits where do we see differing approaches i'm not going to go into every example that there is because there are so many of them 
But I want to mention a couple of the sort of famous groups that have been looked into for these patterns of herbivory evolution. One of the groups that has been studied the most for this, and indeed one of the most famous groups of animals, including herbivores, are dinosaurs. Yep. Herbivorous dinosaurs have been studied intensely with an eye towards how were you evolving herbivory. Well, almost every major group is massively herbivorous. Right. (laughs) When you think of dinosaurs, they just, they were doing it in tons of different ways. Yes. And herbivory originated in many different groups in dinosaurs, which evolved different approaches to eating plants. Uh, Sauropods, your big long necks, and the herbivorous theropods, your bipedal uh, velociraptor-esque dinosaurs, often have smaller skulls with simpler teeth and relatively weak jaws, Mm -hmm. scooping up plants that were easy to do that with, while many of your ornithischians, your ceratops, your horned dinosaurs, your armored dinosaurs, your hadrosaurs, often had big skulls and jaws, very complex teeth, and often very powerful bite forces. Yes. We discussed earlier this year, uh, one of our news items was on a study looking at how herbivory originated in different groups and noting that some of them started out by modifying the musculature around the jaw, others the way that the jaw moved. So you had all these different adaptations that went into getting at ultimately the same sort of thing, eating plants. You all need to now be able to choose this tough material, but there are different ways to chew tough material. Yes. And then on the other hand, there are tons of examples where we see the same features showing up over and over again. I found a really cool study from 2010 that looked at shared features in herbivorous theropods. Oh. So they specifically looked at coelurosaurs. So this is uh, one of the major branches of theropod dinosaurs. Herbivory is inferred often from anatomy or gut contents in many groups of this part of the dinosaur family tree, including ornithomimids, your running ostrich-like dinosaurs, oviraptorids, therizinosaurs, uh, avialans, so the early, the branch that eventually gives rise to true birds. Oh, yeah. There's also at least one herbivorous troodontid. There's yep. uh, that the lemusaurus, I believe, is a ceratosaur. So there's all of these different independent origins of theropod. And what's cool about, you know, early, early dinosaurs seem to have been carnivorous. Yes. And then gave rise to the diversity of dinosaurs, some of which transitioned to herbivory. Just like those early tetrapods transitioned to herbivory. Theropods are a famously dedicated carnivorous group. Mm -hmm. Allosaurs and tyrannosaurs and such. And yet we got multiple times where certain lineages transitioned from dedicated carnivory to eating plants. Well, that's a really cool thing with herbivory and dinosaurs. Like a lot of the, you know, the ceratopsians and transitioned to herbivory early on in their ancestors, like Mm -hmm. the early, some of the very early ceratopsians. Which is why they're so good at it. Yes. So they've been doing that since they've been ceratopsians. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the herbivorous lineages are like that. But then theropods were a fam- you know, mostly, and, and we know them as being the carnivorous dinosaurs, had multiple s- lineages within them do that, and then a few that were like the pandas yeah. of their group that this one, or these couple of, in this group that's mostly meat eaters, seem to be eating plants. And now you're a 
plant eater. So you have everything from entire long-lasting lineages to a couple pocket lineages to just a few, you know, genera or species. Yeah. That's really cool. This study looked at the herbivores among Coelurosaurian theropods that are inferred as herbivorous and then identified what are the common features that they have. Yes. That are shared among them, but not with their direct ancestors. And very prominently, very commonly, they have long procumbent, forward projecting teeth up in the front of the mouth, Mm -hmm. nipping teeth, and leaf-shaped teeth in the back for nipping and slicing their plants. Also very commonly in this group is a loss of teeth. Yes. So reduction in the number of teeth. Some of them go full-on toothless. Yeah, that are just basically a beak now. Others will have fewer teeth in the front or fewer teeth in the back. And they end up looking kind of like a deer. Yeah. Where you've got the nipping teeth up front, the chewing or slicing teeth in the back. And then that long toothless space between. Mm -hmm. Another thing that shows up a lot, often in association with loss of teeth, is a beak. Yeah. A lot of these groups of theropods have beaks. This is also true of ceratopsians, your horned dinosaurs. It's also true of hadrosaurs. Beaks are a common feature that shows up. They're not unique to herbivores, but they do seem in theropods to show up at least initially associated with plant eating. Certain features of the jaw shape are convergently showing up in these different plant eating theropods. Also, longer necks yep, yep. are a wondering. common repeated feature of plant eating theropods, mm-hmm. uh, which that's your adaptation for reaching your food. Yes. And now you can just stand in one spot and go all around the the, the different plants that are near you. (laughs) One really cool thing that this paper then pointed out is like, here's all these traits. All of these most common traits, except for the teeth ones, are also seen in Hoetzins. Our modern day plant specialized theropod coelurosaur dinosaurs. They do have long necks. They have longer necks. They've got those uh, similar skull, jaw, neck features as the other herbivorous theropods. So you get these really cool trends in some groups doing very different approaches to the same thing, Mm -hmm. eating plants, and then other times very different groups. We talked about in the Horned Dinosaurs episode 87 that a bunch of the adaptations that they have for plant eating are very similar to ungulate mammals. Yes. With their batteries of crushing teeth and things like that. Yeah. Also, my brain just clicked with ostriches. Like, you know, we call them ostrich. Mm-hmm. But like ostriches, a dedicated herbivorous bird nowadays. And there's a reason we call ornithomimids ostrich mimics. Yeah. They were probably. Oh, that's so cool. There have also been studies like this on all sorts of groups. I found a 2015 study that found similar patterns in fish. Ooh. They looked at two different species. They noted that among herbivorous fish, there are sort of two ends of the spectrum with herbivory. Some eat lots of food and have very little microbial digestion going on. Okay. While others eat more slowly but have more dedicated hind gut fermentation. This study looked at two different species of prickleback fishes, relatively closely related, very similar diets that used the two different strategies. Like one of them was doing the eat lots of food, don't digest very well strategy. And the other one was taking in food more slowly and had a more dedicated fermentation chamber. So you get, again, 
convergences and divergences among the groups. Yeah. Another study, uh, this was a more recent one, 2021 that I saw, identified among fish, herbivorous fish, repeated evolution of large abdomens mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they get longer and or deeper, you yeah. know, like more of a gut, that that is a feature that shows up over and over again in fish. I saw a study uh, from 2007 that identified similar skull shapes emerging among different groups of herbivorous lizards. Makes sense. That their skulls were adapting in very similar ways, but that their jaws tended to be different. Huh. So the the top of the skull was doing very similar things in adapting for eating plants, and the lower jaw was often doing slightly different things to achieve the same end yeah. of eating plants. Oh, that's so weird. You get these really cool patterns of convergence and divergence. That's like if you had a bunch of scissors where one part, <laughs> one blade was the same in all of them, but the other one was different, but they were all able to be scissors. Yes. That's weird. And then there's one other group that I want to mention uh, as a group that is famously studied for this idea of how do you evolve herbivory this transition from not being an herbivore to being an herbivore you have already alluded to them there is a group of mammals called carnivorans yep they are named for eating meat this is the group that includes dogs cats bears weasels pinnipeds your seals and sea lions and such several times in the evolutionary history of the carnivoran mammals different lineages have become herbivores yes dedicated herbivores Almost certainly the most famous, I mean, the, the, the number one most famous example of this, which you already mentioned, are giant pandas. Absolutely. That is a bear that has become an almost fully dedicated herbivore. Yep. Very similarly, red pandas. Yep. Red pandas are in their own family, a Luridae. Their ancestors are carnivorans, just like all the other carnivorans. Giant pandas and red pandas are one of evolution's most famous examples of convergence. Yes. Their diet is very similar. Their skulls are very similar. They both evolved a pseudo-thumb yeah. from their radial sesamoid bones in the wrist that they use as an opposable digit to grab bamboo. Yeah. An incredible example of convergent evolution for a similar lifestyle and diet. Yeah. Herbivory has evolved among carnivorans in ursids, the bears, red pandas in Aluridae, also in mephitids, your skunks, procyonids, your raccoons and relatives, mustelids, the weasel family, all of which are descended from carnivores. I came across a study from 2010 that looked at, very similar to that dinosaur study, looked at different herbivorous carnivorans, herbivorous carnivorans, (laughs) and identified similar features that show up over and over again. Large molars in the back of the mouth, Tall skulls, deep jaws, mm-hmm. lots of expansion of regions for muscle attachment. Which is interesting because those theropods weren't necessarily doing that. Yeah, I know. They did but, not focus all the energy up at the face. Right. Carnivorans, when they transition to herbivory, tend to evolve very powerful jaws. In fact, that study made the interesting point that herbivore carnivorans tend to have among the most powerful bite forces of carnivorans, which is like the only other ones that they're sort of competing with are the really dedicated carnivore, like yeah. hyenas and lions and stuff. Yeah, which uh, some of those are crunching bone, and that's why. <laughs> yes, 
which is really interesting because that's not always a pattern that we see even in our dedicated herbivorous mammals. Mm -hmm. Like ungulates, they tend to have pretty strong jaws. Oh yeah, you don't want to get bitten by them. No, no, no. But they're not necessarily going all out the same way. Not record breakers the same way. Yeah, that carnivorans are. And this seems to be due to the limitations of where they're evolving from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Carnivorans, so your pandas, your your red pandas and your skunks and such, even the herbivorous ones tend to have relatively simple stomachs. Yep. Simple digestive systems, because they're carnivorans. That's, either that's something that hasn't changed yet in their evolutionary history, or can't change for some reason. Yeah. That there's some sort of restriction. So they aren't doing a lot of microbial digestion. Yeah. Because to meat, to eat meat, meat is much simpler to digest mm-hmm. than plants. We already have stuff in our body that breaks apart meat. Yeah. That, like, that's what we're made of. We have to be able to do that. <laughs> it's much easier. It is it is more efficient from swallowing to get energy when you eat meat. Yes. But now you have less infrastructure to be able to handle the uh, uh, process-intensive plants. And since they can't do that much digestion... They tend to eat lots and lots of food. Yep. And because they're doing, they're eating lots of food, they have to put their jaws to work quite a bit. But also, carnivorans can't move their jaws the same way that other herbivorous mammals can. Yeah. Again, one of the limitations of just the structure of a carnivorous ancestor, of a carnivorin ancestor in particular... They can't grind their food in their mouth very effectively. Because the usually, jaw just doesn't move that way very well. You don't need to chew meat. You just need it to be small enough to swallow. <laughs> so in in lieu of, you know, they can't digest plants as efficiently as other herbivores. They can't grind them up as efficiently as other herbivores. So they go for very powerful bite force mm-hmm. to crush those plants. So there's all sorts of interesting different groups approach herbivory differently. I, I saw one study that looked at uh, herbivorous carnivorans and noticing molecular changes, mm. like where certain chemical processes are happening in the cells of their bodies oh. will change in the same pattern because their metabolism is now different because you're using different molecules. Yeah. So, like, certain processes are now happening in different parts of your cells, and that shows up again and again. The, the, the evolutionary patterns in herbivorous animal evolution are really, really cool. Yes. Fascinating. Well, and it's also fun because, you know, we've you know, mentioned that there, there are different ways to be in herbivore, but we've also listed some very blatantly distinct of, like, strong bite force, basically no biting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> grinding biting yep like lots of digestion mm-hmm. digestive adaptations basically no digestive adaptations and that it's it's all just it's, it's got very much that sort of venn diagram feeling of like you have to accomplish the same thing at the end of the day and you can focus in on these different categories however you want but one will take away from the other because you can't you can't focus in all of them all at the same time that's right. not you know and so it's got very much that there's you can get to the end goal, but some things are going to be more specialized or better than others. Yeah, and some groups, you might not be able to evolve certain adaptations yes. depending on who your ancestors are. Mm-hmm. Theropods weren't evolving ceratopsian skulls. Yeah. And just like weasels are not evolving horse skulls, you're limited by what you're already working with. Which makes me wonder, like, 
if we if we were able to zoom forward and still had pandas mm-hmm. way into the future how how would right how how sloth like will you become yes ha- giant pandas if we get a lineage from mm-hmm. the pandas that become a dedicated herbivorous group w- would we end up seeing them shaped more and more like you know ungulates or would they still be doing a weird own thing yeah it, ooh. very cool subject very important aspect of our modern ecosystems like we said they would not be what they are today without all these variety of herbivores this is another one of those episodes that i like to think puts a lot of our previous episodes into context yes so now every time we've mentioned plant eaters here's a little bit of that extra context for how they got that way and why they are important Thank you, listeners, for joining us on this exploration of this fundamental aspect of Earth ecosystems. Thank you to those who requested it. Before we wrap up for the episode, we have one more thing to do, and that is our patron question. One of the benefits that our patrons on Patreon can receive is the ability to submit questions for us to answer on the podcast. Will, what's our patron question? Our question is from Lucy, who asks... Why does eating and breathing share a passageway? It's often dangerous. That's true. <laughs> it sure is. Yeah, we, we, this is, I like that this is also related uh, in part to uh, today's episode discussion. Yeah, we eat and breathe through the same hole. Yeah, tube. In our, in our face. And it's an interesting question. Why is that, especially since it can happen that they kind of get mixed passages that it if the thing headed that's supposed to go to one goes to the other it's bad a lot of the time right (laughs) i think that now there's this is a whole big discussion but a big part of this comes down to i think a couple of things one convenience Mm -hmm. right why have two holes to bring in stuff when you can have one you know you save energy you're, you're you're now you've got all these muscles and structures that can do two jobs yes Instead of one, but also ancestry. Yes. Fish. We don't often think of it this way. Fish also breathe and eat through the same passageway. Yep. Like we think of the gills as being where they breathe from, but they have to bring in water Mm -hmm. to then pass it through the gills. And there are examples where like nurse sharks and certain ones have a dedicated hole for intake. Mm -hmm. So they can breathe without opening their mouth. But yeah, most fish, the water is coming in through the mouth and then exiting out the side of their head through the gills. Yes. So as our fishy ancestors moved onto land, they just kept it that way. Yeah. So all right, we will continue to bring in where we're, our breathing mechanism is coming in. You know, the, the, the gill arches skeletally and muscularly gave rise to our tetrapod throats. Mm-hmm. So it's the same structure, and a lot of those muscles and, and structures are doing the same things. So it's uh, potentially an easier evolutionary pathway rather than evolving something different, but also it it's efficient in many ways. Yeah. Well, and it also could be one of those where it's just that it not, it's not impossible for us to separate our breathing. Like if we could get a direct tube from just nostrils to lungs. Mm-hmm. That's not impossible. Like, there's definitely ways that could happen, but that also is a lot of changes that would need to happen. Right. And there just may not, evidently, even though it ha- can be dangerous, it's not been enough to pressure that to yeah. happen. Instead, we've adapted strategies for making it easier for ourselves. Yeah. 
So for one thing, those tubes, the, the, the eating tube and the breathing tube, split pretty early on. Yeah. Like pretty much right after the mouth and nose cavity is, they are different tubes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, we have a structure. We have the epiglottis that covers up the breathing tube to avoid getting food and stuff in there. So evolutionarily speaking, it seems those strategies are good enough. Yeah. That's doing the job most of the time so that we don't have to override that fundamental body plan that we inherited from those fishy ancestors. Yeah, which which is a great example of the of two things of evolution that I always like to point out in that one. Good enough is often what evolution ends up with. Sure. Because that's if it's good enough, then it's good enough. And sometimes you can't make the changes you mm-hmm. need to get great. Yes. And that evolution can't just replace a right. system. It has to build off of the system that is present. Mm-hmm. You can't take out this ventilation system and put in a new one. Right. Because you can't turn it off in nope. between. Yep. <laughs> and where are you getting the new one from? Like where? Right. Yes. You have well, you to. Ate, we ate yes, insects. Yes. Yes. And we used their breathing system <laughs> to build a new breathing system. You have more breathing holes than you need. And, well, which is an interesting point that insects don't breathe mm-hmm. and eat through the same hole. They do have holes along the body, spiracles. Yes. Which, like you said, would possibly be super convenient for us, mm-hmm. but that's just not how our bodies are structured. Yes. And it probably wouldn't work with the metabolisms we've built from our current breathing system. Right. Exactly. So it's, you have to build off of and reshape what you already have. You can't just idealize what would work better because that, because evolution doesn't have a brain. So it doesn't know about that. And you <laughs> would have no way to get from A to B. Evolution makes brains. Yes, exactly. It does not, it does not possess <laughs> one itself. Lucy, thank you for that thought-provoking question. Uh, a very fun one, and also I like it ties nicely into our discussions toward the end of this episode. Absolutely. Thank you to all of our patrons who support us on Patreon. Thank you to everyone who supports us in any way, shape, or form, financially, or submitting episode requests, or just telling us that they like the podcast and making us feel good. Mm-hmm. As always, there is a blog post on our website after this episode that will have additional links and images and stuff to support your learning experience. If you'd like to get involved with the things that we do, we've got a Discord, we've got social media, we have a topic request form on our website. There's a link in the episode description that you can follow. All sorts of ways for you to join us. Don't forget that it is... Don't forget that Spooky is around the corner. Yeah, We will be... Uh, we're going to have so much fun with Spooky this year. Also, um, we are record... But when this comes out, thank you to everyone who we assume has come <laughs> to our DragonCon panels. Yes. It was great to see you. We really appreciated seeing you there. And if you're now a listener, welcome. And well, yeah, thanks for joining now that you after uh, DragonCon. We love when that happens. <laughs> if you're... Called- optimism if you're uh, <laughs> yes thank you to all of our new listeners who saw us it's, uh, hundreds, it's so many it's, uh, yeah. hundreds i've of never them. I, I didn't realize i would ever have to she count this high didn't expect that that the room they actually had to take out a wall <laughs> in the room for that one panel it was really it was incredible oh memories uh, yeah, <laughs> we're making we're making them right now <laughs> we release episodes every fortnight stay tuned uh, there is more to come incidentally uh episode 175 is not too far from here which will be a plants episode this was almost like an intermediate plants episode 
I had to try I, I intentionally not stealing Allie's thunder for our upcoming plants episodes. <laughs> Just say it all now. Your move, Allie. Yeah, get it all out of the way. Or make Allie come in here and talk about fish. <laughs> <laughs> you should have talked about plants this one and made her talk about herbivores. That's that, that's the you, that's, that's the punishment. Actually, would have been. <laughs> A lot, a lot of fun. <laughs> that would have been very difficult for both of us. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.